I think that's the biggest problem of machine learning. So machine learning has a lot of possibilities. You can try a lot of different models. Actually forecasting something really easy. How are you exactly going to work with that? What factors should you take into account? Which characteristics of your data do you want to use? What time horizon would you like to predict in the future? And what is the frequency that you want to predict with? Those are questions that really need to be answered and are usually really difficult to get answered because the people that want a model never had experience before with uh, a model. So we always have to explain and think along about how we are going to fit a, a, a prediction model or an, another algorithmic type within the existing processes. And I think that's the, the biggest challenge in doing machine learning related uh, projects. Welcome to the Tangible Computing Podcast. My name is Andrew Rutgers, co-host. And I'm Gareth Thomas. The Tangible Computing Podcast is about where computing meets the real world. From the fast and complex, like controlling an engine to imaging a patient or scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This podcast is powered by VersionBay, a consulting company that offers experienced consultants to professionalize your MATLAB, Simulink, and Python projects, minimizing the risk and quantifying the value in migrating to newer software environments. And now let's find out how software drives the world. Today, we're interviewing Ros Royakers and Hirt Jungen. They're data scientists with Pipple. So to start off, can you tell us a fun fact about yourselves? Yeah, so my name is Ros, 26 years old. I live in Gelderland, uh, uh, close to Eindhoven. And besides working, I do a lot of rowing. <laughs> so the sports rowing outside. Actually, I went this morning at uh, 6.30. I was outside. It was one degree. Pretty cold, but uh, really love it. It's impressive dedication on what it's a late uh, fall day, so quite cold and rainy, and that you're out on a boat. That's impressive. Yeah, and uh, really lovely. So, so tell us a fun fact about yourself. I, I live in uh, in Middelrode, and uh, currently have three kids, and uh, the oldest one just got uh, got one. So the youngest one just got uh, got one. Yeah, that that was nice, uh, nice event. Congratulations! Having three kids is never yeah. an easy, never an easy task, but. Both of you seem to work at a company called Pipple. So maybe just out of curiosity, what, what, what is Pipple? And, and can you tell us the origin of this name? It sounds very original. So Pipple is a data science consultancy company. We have a very special name. It actually has a lot of characteristics of what our company is. So I'll walk you through it. <laughs> of course, we have the number pi. We are an ecnogician or data science company. And we have a lot of mathematicians and statistics people uh, working at our company. So the number pi and the mathematical number, it's uh, 3.14, blah, blah, blah. I don't know all the decimals. It, it stands for something, of course. We have the triple P in there. So people is spelled P-I-P-L-E. And the triple P stands for people, planet, profit. So what we try to do is, of course, use data science to profit ourselves and, and to make our people happy, but also to make the planet a little bit better. And uh, we, we try to do that by doing purpose projects. So for, yeah, I don't know the English name, the NGOs. Is that an English? Non-government organizations. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, the, for example, uh, a company like uh, the Red Cross, uh, they have a really big data science 
or data department where we try to help them with certain projects or ocean cleanup is a very important one, for example. And of course, we have Pippi in there, Pippi Longstocking. Ah. So we try to characterize ourselves as Pippi Longstocking. She's very bold. She has her own vision of the world. And we try to surprise our customers just in a way that, that nobody expected before. And I think, yeah, she's a little bit our, our mascot. <laughs> Very good. And it, and it sounds like you're a, a relatively well-known company here in the Netherlands. How old is the company? The company is five years old right now. Um, we actually started as a different company. And uh, fun fact, so when I started at, at Pipple, it wasn't Pipple yet. And actually in my first week, I was still a grad student. I got to uh, fantasize about what Pipple would be in the future. And I had to do this one minute pitch of the company where I had to tell what the company would do in the future and i was like "Ooh, that's pretty intense for a second week as a grad student but all went well and i still like the company very much so today we have two people on the show so we have ross and we have Gert, right so ross you are a, a data scientist and i think Gert, when we first spoke you said you were a data scientist and you transitioned to a, a data engineer so, so maybe let, let's start with you Gert. can you tell me a little bit about that journey and what is the difference between the two roles and why did you move towards a uh, data engineer? I graduated in, in 2012. And at that point, I don't think uh, anyone, at least that I knew, had heard of a data scientist or data engineer. I think it was called at that time, mostly just analyst or something like, uh, like that. And uh, I went uh, yeah, into the, the daily practice of working from the student life. And basically, I noticed that, yeah, a lot of stuff had to do with analysis, with data, working working around that. And after a few years of, of being in a fixed role eh, inside a company in the private equity uh, world, I went into the uh, consulting role with, with Accenture. And basically, what I noticed is at that point, data scientists was really up and coming. So, so we're now talking about uh, 2014, 2015, really the, yeah, everyone was getting aware that this was something new, that that, that uh, also the tooling was advancing basically, yeah, but especially Python, I think at that point was coming up on us. These modules, I think that everyone now takes for granted. At that point, they were being discovered. They were already very awesome, but they were like, like getting into the mainstream uh, part. And I think at that, at that point, I noticed this is really something special. There, there, there's so much community effort. There's so much innovation happening in, in all sorts of places. And, and it's just actually using, yeah, these tools, these different things to like what I mentioned, just like Panda, Scikit-Learn. And that, that makes it that they develop so fast that there's a lot of potential to, to be had. And uh, yeah, I started as at Accenture, as I mentioned. And at that point, Pipple was also started, or at least its, its predecessor. And yeah, that was really nice to have a small team where you're doing everything, you know, where, yeah, we were at that point, I think, with 10 people, including uh, students. And yeah, we really had to do everything ourselves, like getting it set up, uh, training the model, getting the data right, knowing what you actually want to do. Why is this project uh, happening? And at that point, I realized at a number of projects that the real difficulty was actually not in the training itself because the, yeah, the scikit-learn and other packages, they're just so advanced at this point yeah, that, that you can just do a fit predict basically. And there was a lot of issues basically around that. So getting, getting environments set up, getting people aligned, getting data uh, inside. And I actually noticed that 
that was really the part I really enjoyed. Yeah, getting it all set up, eh? uh, trying to look at the bigger picture of getting things done end to end. And that made me move into the yeah the pipelines world eh? where you start thinking about steps like how are we going to move from just this data set? Are we gonna uh, how are we going to to transform that into a model? And how are we gonna transform this model to something that can be put in production? And how are we gonna get the value that the model is actually? And the whole reason that we actually started this project yeah that made me move into more like the yeah, the things that happen before and after a model. And yeah, basically what I see a lot right now is that most of the effort is required in yeah, before the model. Yeah? So in the part where you need the data, you want to have reliable data. Data quality is really something that I noticed also at the PyData conference in Eindhoven. I noticed that it's really a topic that, that is mentioned a lot. That people realize that these tools are awesome, but maybe we might be going a bit too fast into the, the model training part and in the uh, stuff. So yeah, those factors make it for me very interesting. So what are some factors that make the, what gives you bad data quality and what do you do to, to fix it? Yeah, how long do we have? Huh? It's, it's really. A... I'm just thinking if there's a couple of examples because <laughs> yeah, I, no, I hear data scientists and presentations, and they talk about bad data. And having worked through it a bit myself a few times, I've definitely seen that, and I've seen how you can get ridiculous conclusions if you don't understand the data or you don't clean the data up. But for the listeners, I'm thinking: Are there examples of what does that look like? What's uh, what's an example of, of what would make data bad? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is getting the, the history correct. So especially if you're focusing on a machine learning model, uh, it's very easy to come across data sets where there's actually a lot of things being backfilled. Let's take the typical example where you, you have a funnel of, of uh, possible potential clients and you look at all the data and you want to predict which clients are actually the most likely to succeed, eh, to, to, uh, to pass, and which ones are not. And that's a typical example where you see that at the start of, the, of a sales process, there's very limited data on a client. So there's just eh, the basic details. And as the meetings progress with a client and, and they talk about their interests and, and, and all of that, you get more data. But actually, it, that in itself is already a... a marker and eh? the, the the fact that more data is being generated means that they are passing through the funnel so getting exactly right like what data points did we know at the start of this client starting the conversation with us uh, regarding a, a project and what data was added during meetings after meetings how the, as the project evolved and that's typically really hard to do and what we tend to do then is look at there's only one option eh? you need to talk to the client you, you need to talk to the the, the salesperson mm -hmm. and yeah that's really domain knowledge like what is there and then you try to codify it into uh, pipeline steps or into uh, uh, step into code eh? to actually handle that uh, that thing and and i could have I could imagine also in that case, there's a lot of variability between, 
for instance, if you have many salespeople putting in the data, some of them will say, look, this is a this is a qualified lead versus this is a prospect. And you probably set out some guideline for what each of those means. But each person is going to interpret that slightly differently and differently depending on the day of the week. So you're going to get different data from what should have been similar cases. In addition to all of the, the ones you mentioned of just you get more data as you go further down the pipeline. So yeah, that that's a good example of how the, the data quality can be difficult to work with. Yeah. So, so yeah. I think that yeah. there's an interesting duality there, right? So I think on one side here, you're saying that there's uh, a need for a technical person to maintain the pipelines to ensure the data quality. But then there, there's also a strong reason where there's a person like Ross, where there's maybe more of an algorithmic mathematical element bringing the domain knowledge. So maybe I'm Ross from your side. What are some of the challenges that you see and how do you get these proof of concepts going and understanding with your customers? Can you share a few difficulties or common challenges you face? Yes. Hit me. I think one of the first things, one of my first real machine learning projects, I made a common mistake. And not only me, but I think all the people that were involved in that project. So we thought, let's do this really cool, intense, bad payer prediction model. We, had, we I was working for an energy uh, company. I can't say which one. But this company wanted to predict like which customers are likely to not pay or pay late in the future. Uh, based on certain characteristics. And they really had the, uh, the feeling that they could use information about the customers, like a credit score and also past pay paying behavior, maybe behavior on, on websites or logging in, yes or no. That type of information to predict, like which customers should we keep an eye on? We are not going to find them before they did anything wrong, of course, but just which one should we? And yeah, through this process, we, we gathered a lot of data. Uh, I built a really cool model. And then we wanted to uh, put this model in production because we thought, okay, let, this is something we can work with. But what we saw was that all the data that we prepared beforehand was data that came out of systems, times that we couldn't use within the production model. So we had to change a lot of the characteristics while going into production, while doing the integration. And that costs us a lot of time, uh, especially for a data engineering department. Uh, I said, uh, I want the data to look like this and this. And they were like, no, it doesn't come out of the system that way. It should be like this and that. So we wasted a lot of time there. And uh, yeah, it was a really good and important lesson for, for next time. So always try to work against production data or data that is as close as possible to real production data. That's the tip. And earlier, Gert mentioned a few Python packages and tools. Are those the main tools that you've used? Gert mentioned that they're almost a standard and well-used and well-defined, but I'm assuming that when you get called to your customers, they are maybe calling you because they don't have that experience. Do you often come across situations where you get the possibility to choose the tools or do you often encounter places where you have to adapt to the existing infrastructure that customers have? Yeah, so I think uh, the correct answer is that every consultant always tries to work with the tools that the customer already has in case they don't know or they don't have any tool yet, or we would really recommend a different tool, then of course we do that. But we always try to use what's already there, especially with non with, with licensed tools. They are already paying a, probably a higher fee to use a certain software package or, or application. Uh, and if we say, hey, no, you need another one and you need to pay a license for a year or, or more, then, yeah, that's, of course, not very attractive to work with us. 
So we always try to use the tools that are there. Sometimes we learn something ourselves. One of the projects that I've done was in, in simulation. And we actually work with a package called Plant Simulation from Siemens. It, yeah, it's a technomatics platform. I never worked with that before, but because the customer did, yeah, we actually learned how to work with that package and gained a lot of experience on that as well. So it's also really cool for us. <laughs> And when and, you get- yeah, and what, what I want to mention there is that yeah, indeed eh, there are existing tools, and but mainly on the data front, you sometimes see that there is actually no tool eh, that that it's just yeah just a way of working between departments, uh, exchanging data through Excel's through email, and at that point we do have some leeroom to to introduce a tool, and then I'm not especially hung up with one particular tool, but I really like the managed services from the cloud. Because that makes them, especially with larger data sets, then typically we move to the, to the Spark world to, uh, to handle that. And uh, yeah, having a managed solution for that. And there, there are loads there, like uh, Databricks, for example, but also for Azure Synapse is one and, and Amazon uh, has one. That really makes our work easier because we're just offloading a lot of the, yeah, the nitty gritty network. Yeah, all of those tasks that yeah, you don't want to be involved with daily. So, so maybe just to go a little bit deeper on that. So this is a terminology that maybe a data engineer lives and breathes. How do you articulate that to data scientists who might not understand or be as familiar with the terms that you threw out? Could you maybe share an insight <laughs> yeah. of how you would maybe communicate with Ross and say, this is what, why it's so important? Yeah, what, what I sometimes see at clients, for example, is we're using a Spark. Eh? Um, uh, a Spark is a distributed computing tool. So basically it allows you to have data in a cluster instead of on a single machine where if you use Pandas with Python, you're always stuck with one machine basically. And what I noticed there is that getting a Spark cluster set up on your laptop or on a a on-premise environment is really hard getting it maintained. So keeping all the Python environments on the different nodes, et cetera, up to date, et cetera, that's really hard. Getting yeah, a platform solution where that is taken care of really speeds up your development cycle because yeah, that there are just so many dependencies and packages and exceptions. And yeah, it's really hard to do it yourself. And, and then you need to have a really a dedicated team to, to manage these uh, things. And it probably also makes a lot of sense from a uh, capital cost perspective that keeping a large yeah. number of expensive computers running when in practice you're using them a few days a year full time, or I, I don't know the specific loads, but it'll tend to be yeah, brief definitely. periods where you're doing a lot of work, where you're running a project and then you shut it down and it you don't need it at all. Whereas yeah. if somebody else, Amazon, Microsoft, whoever owns that, and then you just rent it by the hour when you need yeah. it, it uh, can be yeah. cost-wise yeah, a lot definitely. more efficient. Definitely. Even uh, I saw that with, with the latest surplus solution, you even pay by the terabyte processed. So you don't even need to have a cluster running or something like that. You just, when, once, once you run a query, you just pay for the actual data processed, which is especially in the beginning of a project, you do not know what the load is. You do not know what the usage will be, what the frequency. You don't want to think about all these things. You just want to have something available at all time at very limited cost. Then yeah, these solutions are really, really, yeah, uh, they fit perfectly. 
So, so, so along those lines, there. So, it sounds like that once the problem that you're trying to solve and the algorithms yeah. are there, it, it feels that there's a second layer of issues that need to be fixed around the the data management, and you articulate that very nicely. And I, I think you called out at the beginning that you're there's a bit of work at the beginning, so you enable people. Uh, the data scientists such as Ross to be able to be productive so that they don't need to worry about stuff which is maybe outside their domain. And then there's this later stage to keep and maintaining that. But I'm a little curious and maybe Ross, can you maybe go a little bit deeper in some of the difficulties that you encounter with machine learning and some of the issues that it seems like maybe it's not always as easy as you just articulated that the customer is very clear on what they want and how to do it. So I'm curious to hear your experience of some of the difficulties you encounter. Yeah, so first of all, the customer usually doesn't know what he wants. And I think that's the biggest problem of machine learning. So machine learning has a lot of possibilities. You can try a lot of different models. And what Geert said in the beginning, you have this predict and fit function uh, or fit and predict function, actually forecasting something really easy. But yeah, how are you exactly going to work with that? What factors should you take into account? Which characteristics of your data do you want to use? What time horizon would you like to predict in the future? And what is the frequency that you want to predict with? Those are questions that really that need to be answered and are usually really difficult to get answered because the people that want a model never had experience before with uh, a model. So we always have to explain or, or work with them and, and think with them, uh, think along about how we are going to fit a, a, a prediction model or an, another algorithmic type within the existing processes. And I think that's the, the biggest challenge in doing machine learning related uh, projects. Yeah, of course, you have other challenges like a computing power and things are not working or uh, you have a bug somewhere or packages are not working together or, or things like that. But those are more technical challenges. And I think we, as a data scientist, we really like to have those types of problems uh, so that we can really focus on them and, and, and spend our time on, on solving those. But yeah, the biggest challenge I find is this actually this data translator role where you go from existing process to a new process where you have machine learning or algorithms. What are some characteristics of a, a problem that make it uh, a good fit for data science for machine learning? And conversely, what are some characteristics that would make it a really bad fit? And that you say, no, this isn't something machine learning can help with. Good question. I haven't thought of this question before. It's, this is uh, me answering on the spot. But I think you need to find a process where you really have a, a start and an end. And you have some type of data that goes in the process. It's always the same type of data. So that's really important. It's really consistent. It's correct. It's complete. And it's always then you run your model and the output should be something that you can actually uh, set an action upon. So it shouldn't be information that just, yeah, maybe gives you a bit of background, but there should be something actionable. So a, a department or a team is going to uh, do something with that information and acting upon that. And if you don't have that, then the impact that you will be making is rather small. And I think that's really important for having impact and value within your machine learning project. Oh. Yeah. And what I usually ask also then is like, what should be the performance of the model? And that, that already gets a lot of insight. We know we will never get 100% correct. It's probably overfitting <laughs> if we do get that. So what happens if we have 80% or 90% or 95%? At, at what point does it actually bring the value you want? And at what point are you better off just doing it the way you're currently doing? 
And that opens usually a lot of interesting discussion. What's the actual value? How certain do we need to be in order to do something? And what do we do then? And if we do not know it for certain, what eh, can, can we do something else that, that still brings value? So for your earlier example with the energy provider, if you, if you have an uncertain model, it may make sense to say, we're certain enough with it that we're going to send reminder email or we're going to send reminder letters to certain people because it's very low cost. But if we send less me- send less letters, we save ourselves some money and that we're delivering some business value. But we wouldn't use it because it's uncertain to, for instance, cut off people's electricity because it's of the uncertainty there that that wouldn't be ready or that the data quality wouldn't be high enough to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I th- also th- there are rules that also make that you cannot uh, cut off, of course, yeah, electricity yeah, no, that, that, uh, a model. but yeah, th- that's a good example. Yeah. So maybe just for my understanding that you being both part of a consulting organization, you, you get called to customers where they don't have that knowledge in house. So I'm assuming at the beginning of a project, there's quite a few iterations to clarify and get those answers that you are, uh, articulated nicely. But how do you deal with the fact that when you come up with an AI model or an answer that is counterintuitive for your customers, right? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm assuming that not all the time the answers are exactly what everyone expected. And when you come up to this place and say, actually, there's a better way of doing things or the model predicts this, which is a surprise to everyone. How do you build that confidence to say that the models are the right thing versus people naturally gravitating towards their experience in-house and saying, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. You can say whatever you want. I still trust my gut more than what you're doing. How do you build that confidence? Yeah, I think you need a lot of work sessions for that. And it's always, uh, usually data science is a topic in, in bigger companies, right? Because they have the money to actually start those types of projects. So what is that the, the management layer wants to start with data science because they heard it's really something inno- innovative and it's something that will give, yeah create value for them. Uh, the important part is that we don't lose sight of the people that are actually going to work with the models. So we really need, for example, planners or, I don't know, marketeers or the people that will be working with the outcome of the model to join all the sessions. Yeah, think along how this model will support their uh, processes or in, in, increase or improve their work life. If you don't do that, you will probably... Uh, get a lot of resistance once you start implementing a model and it will really be a top-down implementation whereas you really want people working with the tools to 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 actually love it and then uh, and be enthusiastic about it and that's difficult in every organization it, it involves a lot of change management and also adopting a new digital lifestyle within your organization we are data science consultants we are not change managers but yeah we try to help as, as much as possible but it also yeah it needs to come from the organization as well if, if I can also relate to that, I think it's very important that we're basically talking about trust. Eh? And, and mm-hmm. trust is you, you need to trust the model and the model is based on data. So you need to trust the data and you need to trust like the actions that they're going to be followed up on, etc. And when I look at trust on the data side, I think that one of the most important things is that the data that you're using comes from a data source that's actually used. I think the only way to really have trust in the data is if it's basically used in, in your daily reporting, in your overview as a department, to make an example, how many invoices are we processing? 
that number needs to make sense yeah, in, in your view as, as an employee in that department. So it, it needs to be some kind of a number that the, the business is already a number of invoices, obviously very key for finance or something that some executive is driving that people are already filling in because it fulfills a need for a dashboard and it provides feedback as opposed to just telling everyone, look, uh, by the way, we're doing data science now and we need you to record this extra piece of information yeah. for some yeah. nebulous purpose that we haven't or the, the, that's difficult to explain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got these 10,000 invoices from the system and based on that, we're telling you, you should do it like this. So then you really need to yeah, tie into those numbers. We're talking about 10,000. That's last month's number, for example, that should be the same. That then we're probably talking about the same thing. And then, yeah, there are a lot of small things that you can hook into to to ensure that people trust the, the data you're, you're using. And that, that, of course, is the foundation then for the model. Do you ever run into cases where you end up getting a, a negative or a null result where you do some analysis, you do some data training, and the model doesn't really come up with useful predictions or uh, doesn't the uncertainty ends up being too high? D does that happen or how do you deal with that? Yeah, so what we usually do when we start at a customer is, is we, we do something that we call a quick scan. Uh, so within just a few days, we try to get a, a vision of if the situation allows for having a machine learning model and if it will give you some results. Based on the analysis that we do there, we do them jointly, of course, with the company, and we can decide, do we continue, yes or no? And yeah, throughout the whole development process, every time we try to report on what we are doing, and every time we can still decide, okay, this is not going to go some, anywhere. So maybe we should stop yes or no. And in some cases, of course, that happens. So we have customers where we start with a quick scan. And based on that information, they say, yeah, this is not enough for us. So we are not going to continue. What do you think is the minimum business size or project size where data science starts to become uh, really valuable. I, I had someone ask a question about why don't medium and small businesses use more data science. And it's just if you were talking about 10,000 invoices, now I've got a data set that I can do something with. And if I can improve my payment rate on those 10,000 invoices by by 1%, by 5%, that's actually really worthwhile. But if I have three invoices last month, then this is going to be a very difficult project. What do you think is the threshold for where data science gets interesting or some of the characteristics that, that make it get financially interesting to bring in a data science consultant? Yeah, so creating a model costs time and money. And what we usually say is if you don't get your expenses back within a year, maybe it's not worth it. And I think that's the mark for deciding if your company is big enough, yes or no, and how big your project should be. So if you don't get a return on investment within a year, uh, don't do it. Yeah, And then if and usually you're doing sort of percentage improvements, and I, I don't know what the range is, 1%, 5%, 20% improvements in processes, then you need to pay for your project within a year of 5% or whatever the outcome is, better performance in the business process that you're working with. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, we try to do it in that way. And forecasting models, this is really difficult because um, deciding what the return on investment will be when you use forecasting models, it, it, that's a really challenging question. With more algorithmic optimization, so more within the logistics department, that's what I'm thinking of. So optimizing uh, certain routes that vehicles are, are, are driving or picking packages in the right way. That's usually easier because you have more 
concrete KPIs where you can steer upon. But still there, translating distance savings to money is still a difficult one. It will always be. So maybe to understand a little bit better your customer base, right? So we've been kept it relatively generic up until now, saying general AI consulting. Uh, you have referred to a few financial applications, but what are the key industries that you're actually serving? Is it primarily the financial world and logistics, or do you also go down to maybe more applying AI at a more deeper engineering level? Where, where is your sweet spot for you as a company? Yeah, actually, uh, most of our, our clients are closely related to ITO. <laughs> that's, uh, that's one part of it. And then basically, yeah, we focus on financial logistics. That is just where we've had, we've had a lot of projects uh, going. And um, now we're also moving into the, how do you call it, the consumer goods uh, industry. Basically more, yeah, yeah, manufacturing related uh, sites. Yeah, and health. We also get more to hospitals, to yeah, maybe care homes. But it's more logistic-related questions. So, for example, capacity planning or people planning. But it's within more the health sector. So when you come into these customers, I'm assuming that there's nothing random, right? So they already have processes in place. So what are the common things that you see? And so, for example, in operational logistics, this is a well-defined area. There's plenty of algorithms out there. Do you often encounter situations where you say, I don't really need to use AI. I just need to use pure mathematics that is well-known. Or do you always end up going to the AI route? No, I think that happens in a lot of it. So sometimes we are also a little bit disappointed by the amount of advanced algorithmic stuff we can do. Uh, of course, there's always this trade-off between how good and how well should the model perform versus how much development time and capacity do you have. And usually what you said with easier models or maybe more like business rule related algorithm algorithms, uh, you have the yeah, sufficient amount of results or performance that you would need within the organization. And yeah, in many cases, you start small. And if there's a success, maybe a customer comes back saying you can do something more. So do you consider the, the, the kind of linear programming solvers, and these are used for things like scheduling problems, do you count that as part of AI? I, I've been on the fence of whether this is AI, but on the other hand, those kind of tools have been around for a long time. And I, I think of it mathematically as a very different branch from the deep learning neural network feedback networks that I, I traditionally think of as machine learning. So I'm wondering if you count them in the same bucket. Yeah, so it's good to know that we have a lot of uh, people working with econometrics as a background. And what you see is that part of it is more operations research, so MIPs, uh, linear programs, those types of stuff. Uh, and on the other hand, you have uh, time series forecasting, econometric methods, uh, and more statistics-related stuff. And from that side, you really go into the data science department. So no, I don't say that MIPs are related to data science, but yes, we do apply them at the customers that we have right now. Yeah, What's the, some advice that you'd give? Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that there's a problem and you want to solve the problem. And we're not afraid to use neural net, but, but yeah, the, the reality is in a lot of cases, it's actually the stuff from the eighties that, 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 yeah, that the, 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 the scheduling solvers are actually yeah. really good at doing that and throwing a neural network at it probably won't get you very much compared yeah, to, yeah, there's a handful of existing libraries that do that type of work. Indeed. Well, and I was actually quite surprised in the beginning eh, that, that it's, we're now in the 2020s and we still uh, use those uh, technologies, but 
Yeah, if you think about it, there's so much growth in, in logistics with all the e-commerce, you name it, that, yeah, as a company in that business, you just want to grow and you just want to deliver the stuff. And you, you want to, you, you, that's far more important than looking at an optimal way to do things. You just want to get it done. And, and, and I think we're in that situation sometimes where you see there's tremendous growth rates that, that are just impossible to optimize against. You, you really need to have some steady state at some point or the problems need to become so gigantic that you need to look at it from an OR perspective that you really start doing that. And then, yeah, actually the first step are looking at these methods that are actually quite, quite standard. So I'm also assuming that it depends a little bit on the DNA of a company, right? If a company is founded by mathematicians, maybe there's a higher focus on the optimization because it's in the DNA of the founders. But if the founders got a very different background or maybe more operational driven, that then these things fall on the back burner. So I can imagine it's not just based on the scalability, but the DNA and the mindset of the, the company itself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I also find... Definitely. I also find with the, the kind of scheduling problems or and, and a lot of, I think, the data science ones is the core algorithms, whether it's a neural network that was just recently invented and recently came up or a, a uh, scheduling solver, which has been around for a long time, there's still an enormous value in bringing that to the market and fitting it to what the customer actually needs with the user interface and it fits in their business processes and all of these things. The core technology may be relatively... Yeah, standard and it's been around for a while, but the fact that you link it properly to the client's needs uh, is where the value gets delivered. Yeah, I think that, so it's good to mention that Pitbull is a, a company where we do custom-made algorithms, or we, we make custom-made algorithms and forecasting models for our customers. And the reason why there is still so much work for us is because the standard packages don't fit processes that are already there at the companies. And I think that also relates to what you were just saying. We have, there are so many tools and there are so many ways that you can apply models, so many techniques that you can uh, use, but you just have to find the right one and implement it in the right way for the right customer so that they can actually make use of and benefit from that uh, technique. Yeah. What, what's some advice you'd give to someone starting out in data science or data engineering? Other than join people. <laughs> I, I assume you're hiring. Most companies are. <laughs> always. We're always hiring. Definitely. Now, what, what, uh, I, I think what I would look at is, is try to look outside the typical box. Like, uh, I hear a lot of people on university right now there, they get the, the random forest, uh, regressions, the one model after the other, which is of course the, the core part of a data scientist, but Actually, there's so much more that you need to be uh, that you need to be aware of. So, for example, look into SQL. Make sure that you understand how you can extract data from a system. Look at just the basic cloud perspectives. What does a blob mean? Uh, well, well, what does storage mean? And you don't need to be an expert. I know it's a rabbit hole all the way. So it doesn't matter what you start doing. You you get uh, sucked into it. Yeah, but getting like this broader perspective, like. In what context am I doing my work? And uh, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that's really important, I think. So Gert, I also noticed that you gave a talk at a PyData uh, Eindhoven conference, and I think you called out Databricks. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more what is Databricks and why do you like it so much? 
yeah, Databricks is is one of the uh, cloud tools that I met, that I mentioned there. That basically has a version of Spark that that you can use. They're actually the original developers also of Spark. They maintain also a lot of the open source uh, part. And basically, yeah, it's a cloud platform that has a, a closed source version of Spark. So that's uh, sometimes forgotten that there are actually two versions. The, the open source one is, is free to use. And that is the one that, that Azure is using in Synapse. And I guess that AWS is using in their uh, solutions. And then there's this particular version of Databricks that has some additional features that are interesting for corporates. So... Those are mainly around convenience functions. In general, I think I'm a big span, a fan of Spark because of, yeah, it's really the, the way you can move between the Python world and the Spark world is, is yeah, it does take a learning curve, but uh, once you get to know of it, it's really, yeah, it, it can be quite smooth, relatively speaking. What are some of the things you want to learn next? Yeah, I think for me, currently I'm working in a in the contact tracing department for the whole coronavirus shizzle. And one thing that I see there is that this is an organization that has been founded two years ago, or yeah, almost two years ago when corona happened, and we had to do everything quick and, and, and fast. Uh, and there are not many people that, that do data science there, although there's a lot of data available and we want to have a lot of insights. So we work a lot with Excel, and that's what I've been doing for the past two years. Excel is a really cool tool. You can do a lot of that, and many people understand it. But for me, I would, yeah, as a person, I would really like to get back to the modeling and also learn more about data engineering, cloud computing, user, using tools like Azure or, or uh, AWS or, or stuff like that. I just haven't had the experience, but I think it will come with uh, the different projects that uh, I will be doing. As engineers and data scientists, you often like to think of, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna have this big cloud-based Python solution, but oftentimes for the simple problems, frankly, it does just come back to Excel. And also because you don't need to install it, just everybody's got it on their computer. You can just email it over and they can understand it mostly. And for some problems that, ends up being the right answer and not the, the complex cloud-based uh, system. Yeah, only problem is if Corona takes long enough, Excel is not capable of having the entire data set in there. There are only that many rows and uh, <laughs> it's kind of- It used to be 65,000 rows, but I, I thought it's been it's moved more, up now. Yeah, yeah, it's over a million, yeah. Yeah, no, and I think for me, it's where, yeah, I'm spending a lot of time looking at data pipelines and it's a, yeah, of course, it's from one perspective, it's an old field, but in, in the perspective of cloud storage versus compute, it's actually quite new and it's hard to know what the best ways are. There are still a lot of lessons to be learned in, and, and, and the, yeah, there are all sorts of access. Eh? So it depends on cost, it depends on readability for users, it depends on testing of data pipelines. So there are a lot of, yeah, I don't know how to call it, a lot of perspectives on, on data pipelines that are not fully thought out yet. That uh, the, To me, it feels like we're still in the phase where we're maturing the whole setup. So, so maybe, Gert, for my understanding, so I'm not so much of a data engineer, so uh, I apologize for being yeah. a bit blunt, but in my mind, it's a bit like, well, how hard can this be? You've got data coming in, okay? So maybe you've got a couple of sources. I'm assuming you have like a script and you, you clean it because the source is always the same and then you maintain a few scripts and then maybe you reduce it, you apply some maths, okay? And then you push it out to another system. 
and you repeat this. So, so I, and I hear a lot data engineers saying, oh, it's difficult maintaining these pipelines. They get really complicated. But in my mind, I just see that, well, there's just a couple of stages. How hard can it be? And okay, I configure a couple of machines. So let's just standardize on either AWS or Google. Is it really that difficult that you need entire teams and squads to get this going? How do you correct my naive view on the world? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question, and I hope in a few years that uh, we're back to the, well, back we're to a situation where it's actually that simple. I think mainly it's not the technical challenge because it's not that hard to indeed transform data, reduce it, and send it to another system. But looking at data, you expect some things, and usually the data is not what you expect. And at that point, there's a whole bunch of things that can happen and that can be the cause for these things. And, and that requires, if, for example, a very simple example, let's say that a date is not what you expect. It's outside the range of expected dates. It can be a very simple error. Someone just made a typo and you need to correct it. Okay, let's just check it and send it back to the mm. business so they can fix it. It can also be something more dramatic. It can also be that we don't fully understand the process. So then... It's actually, you have to take care of it. So we need to change our code and, and we need to then process it correctly. Maybe the rule was checked last month, but it changed this week. And uh, now we need to correct it. And they forgot to tell us. And yeah, there can be so many causes behind that simple thing that that you, yeah, that, that you need squads to uh, check these things, connect with the people actually producing the data and managing it. So that's actually one thing that's being addressed by Data Mesh, which is I want to give your listeners, if, if they want to read out like in what way, in what organizational IT type structure can we handle these things? And I'm actually quite enthusiastic about this, that approach of organizing your teams, basically. Yeah. So, uh, Data Mesh, Google it. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. And then uh, maybe just to follow up on uh, Rosa's comments, you said you wanted to go a little bit deeper, but we didn't quite dive into your superhero origin story. So your background, did you mention econometrics? Did I hear that correctly? Or how did you get from econometrics to going to a purely data science consultant? Was this kind of the goal in life to say, hey, I, I want to make the world a better place, so I'm going to just become a data scientist? Tell me a little bit more about how that unveiled itself. I don't know if it's a really interesting story, but uh, it was actually a kind of an accident. I got a message from, from people that wasn't people back then, but yeah, it was saying, hey, Rose, we see that you are uh, almost graduating your master's degree in uh, econometrics and operations research. Do you want to have a look at our company? So I grabbed a cup of coffee and uh, well, they had a really cool thesis uh, project laying there for me, screaming, oh, <laughs> <laughs> come here. So yeah, that's how I started. I, I did my thesis, master thesis on a, a vehicle routing project. So it was also not really data science related, but more like a combinatorial optimization, operations research related. And just happens to be that we are a combination of yeah, more the algorithms and the forecasting, modeling, and neural nets, and deep learning. I learned more about that. And, and with the background in econometrics, I think you have the mathematical uh, background to get into that and, uh, and to learn about it. Uh, but it wasn't a plan beforehand, no. <laughs> and I also see that you're quite active in women in data science. So how, how did that come about being? Yeah, so women in data science, for the people that don't know it, this is a Stanford University initiative. Uh, it's something that happens worldwide for, I think, five years now, something like that. 
And it's originally founded by, by a few people at Stanford University to give female data scientists a way, the floor to, to tell about their projects and to inspire other people about what they are doing. Uh, reason for that is that the, one of the hosts was actually asked to speak at the data science conference. She couldn't be there. And then when she got the program, she saw that there were only males yeah, as keynote speaker. And she was like, huh? why didn't you ask any other females? And the organization said, yeah, we couldn't find any. So she was like, no, that's not true. So I'm going to prove you are wrong. And I'm going to host something where there are only female speakers uh, telling about data science. That happened to be really big. And there are many people interested in that. And right now they have over 200 conferences worldwide every year. And people host one of those conferences. Actually, we're planning on doing some another one next year. In March, on the 7th of March, there is this big international yeah it's women's day and and we have this big kickoff session also in collaboration with stanford university and then we have another session in in may that's hosted by people but it's yeah it's really interesting and i happen to be the ambassador from people's side so really really proud of that uh, so I think it's I think it's very cool. And not only in data science is bias a problem, but also the people behind the data science is a problem. So it's very interesting to see that you're tackling that as well. Kudos to that. It's a good initiative. So how can people uh, reach out to you? By email, of course, Geert at uh, pipple.nl or LinkedIn, or uh, I have a Twitter account, uh, Jongen87. Yeah. From my side, uh, same as Geert, so Rose at pipple.nl or uh, via LinkedIn. This is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers or how to make this podcast better. Send an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com 